Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Hello everyone, my name's Sophie Black. I'm Head of Special Projects at the Wheeler Centre. On behalf of the Sydney Writers' Festival, I'd like to welcome you to this extremely disagreeable chat. <laughs> Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, cancel culture. We're going to try not to use that term too much today, but I think we might fail. Many, many column inches have been devoted to ideas about who gets to be heard, and the cry of cancel culture is bandied around to suggest that we have a collective cultural problem with free speech. But maybe the nature of disagreement in the public sphere suggests that maybe the real difficulty lies elsewhere. Our esteemed guests, Randa Abdel-Fattah, Jeff Sparrow and Kishore Napier-Rahman are going to unpack all the loaded ways that we understand the privilege, responsibilities and dangers of public speech. And all in under one hour. No pressure, guys. <laughs> Randa Abdel-Fattah is a prominent Palestinian Egyptian Muslim writer, former lawyer, anti-racism advocate and Islamophobia scholar. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at Macquarie University researching the generational impact of the war on terror on Muslim and non-Muslim youth. Randa's books include Coming of Age in the War on Terror, Islamophobia and Everyday Multiculturalism. Jeff Sparrow is a writer, editor and broadcaster. He writes a regular column for The Guardian and contributes regularly to many other Australian and international publications. He's the author of many books, including Trigger Warnings, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right, and the most recent, Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre. Kishore Napier-Rahman is a reporter for Crikey, and before joining their team in 2018, Kishore was an editor at Honey Soit, an intern at the Sydney Morning Herald, and a legal reporter for Justinian. He has degrees in arts and law from the University of Sydney. Please join me in giving a big round of applause for everyone. Okay, we'll, we'll get cancel culture out of the way. Let's, let's do this. Let's just get right into this, okay? Um, seems like the entire Republican National Convention was devoted to decrying uh, cancel culture. Um, in the aftermath of the Capitol riots, when President Trump was removed from just about every social media app, Eric Trump blamed the left and the age of cancel culture. That kind of language has trickled down into our politics and our language uh, here in Australia. Uh, just two days ago, our own Prime Minister, uh, Mr Morrison, doubled down on comments he made in a speech to a national Christian conference earlier this month with another speech suggesting that cancel culture was undermining our very morality. And I can't tackle this subject without reading out this comment from Assistant Defence Minister Andrew Hastie, who a couple of weeks ago was referring to the lockdown in WA and the effect on Anzac Day services. And he said, I think of, you know, the 10th light horse who didn't go into lockdown in the trenches when the bullets started flying. They did their job and my fear is that we're going to become more risk averse than courageous. We need 
a courage culture in this country, particularly if we're going to push back against a cancel culture. Okay, Jeff, I'm going to start with you. What does it even mean to be cancelled? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I think this debate is usually sheds more heat than light is it so much depends on the terminology that you use. And very often, I think, the way these questions are phrased makes them more or less meaningless. I, I think there are some genuine issues um, to talk about the left and, and, and free speech, and I'm sure we'll get onto that. But at the same time, if we are talking about people getting cancelled, you are only able to cancel someone in any serious way if you're actually in a position of power. And by and large, the people who are in a position of power in this and other countries are still the same people who have always been in positions of power. So, you know, there are very few workplaces in Australia where if you use the wrong pronoun, you are going to get cancelled in any serious way. There are lots of workplaces in this country, if you talk about joining a trade union, you will lose your job. There are lots of places in this country where if you say things about the Anzacs, you will lose your job. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the Hastings quote is a really good point of entry into this discussion because, you know, um, the notion of the Anzacs and uh, cancel culture, if we want to talk seriously about what happened in the First World War in Australia, one of the first things that the Australian government did when war broke out was to introduce the War Precautions Act, which made it illegal to um, argue against recruiting. And plenty of people in Australia during the First World War went to jail for opposing the First World War. So, you know, if we want to talk about cancel culture, um, cancel culture was alive and well um, in Australia during the First World War. And if you look at the people who've lost their jobs for saying the wrong things, overwhelmingly it's been people who are critical of the Anzacs. If, for instance, you say something like, actually the Anzacs weren't fighting for freedom, the Anzacs were invading another country, which had they been successful, they would have, been, they would have handed over um, Turkey to the Tsar of Russia, one of the most repressive countries in all of Europe at the time, if you say that and you're working for the ABC, you're likely to lose your job, even though it's true. Actually, that's true. That, that is just objectively the case. Whereas if you say something like the Anzacs were defending Australia, which is not true, they clearly weren't defending Australia, they were invading another country, um, you'll be... You'll be um, promoted and rewarded and nothing will happen to you. So if that is not cancel culture, then I don't know what is. Kishore, the right's embrace of this cancel culture concept has been growing steadily for the last few years, hasn't it? I mean, is this, is this the new political correctness? I think there are a couple of things to unpack there. Firstly, what Jeff was just saying really reminds me of, and this is a reference which will probably only land with half the audience, uh, but the Spider-Man meme where the Spider-Man's pointing at the other Spider-Man, right? <laughs> it's like, you're talking about people shutting down debate, but at the same time, you're like, you question the Anzacs and you'll get the Prime Minister on the phone to ensure that your job is, is down the toilet, right? So, you know, I, I think that it does get sort of tossed around with a bit of, you know, 
without really looking at the context and what's actually going on. The other thing to say here, though, is that there is at the moment what I call a kind of transnational culture war right. And you can see that in the way that the remarks that someone like Morrison and Hastie make are just directly imported from stuff that Donald Trump's saying in, in America. And it's fascinating to me that Donald Trump, who I suppose has been cancelled to the extent that the American electorate had enough of him, booted him out of the White House, and he's been kicked off every kind of respectable social media platform out there, but he still has just this incredibly pervasive influence over the kind of talking points that you see in the kind of culture war right. And when I talk about the culture war right, I mean people that, you know, get really head up about things like cancel culture and they don't really drill into what that might mean or the potential Spider-Man meme-esque hypocrisy of, you know, calling out the left for cancelling their views, but they just internalize those talking points. Another really interesting example for me um, was some comments made by our, um, oh, what is she? She's the Assistant Attorney General, Amanda Stoker, the other day, who got really mad about critical race theory. Now, there wasn't really much of a kind of grappling of what critical race theory really is. It's, it's sort of about understanding structural racism and that kind of thing. But really, that was just a direct importing of something that Donald Trump railed against back in September. And, and it's interesting that all these cues are taken for overseas without really much interest in the actual contest of what's going on here, in the actual political issues of what's going on here, in the actual meaningful challenges of our day, right? In, you know, there's a global pandemic going on, there's a climate crisis, but really we want to talk about these relatively trivial little issues uh, around cancel culture. These concerns aren't sort of or even catchphrases aren't exclusively owned by the right, though, are they, Randa? Like, there's, there's a couple of examples that come to mind. Just last week, the philosopher Peter Singer, along with a number of colleagues, launched the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which has been described as a response to so-called cancel culture. They describe it as an open access, peer-reviewed, interdisciplinary journal specifically created to promote free inquiry on controversial topics. And they're going to give authors the option to publish their work under a pseudonym in order to protect themselves from threats to their careers or their physical safety. And then another example I can think of is the Harper's Letter from last year, which was signed by you know, a number of authors and intellectuals like J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, uh, and they warned that this spread of censoriousness is leading to an intolerance of opposing views and a vogue for public shaming and ostracism. And Rowling compared it to the current climate to the McCarthy years. The letter ends by asserting that the way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument and persuasion, not by trying to silence or wish them away. Have they got a point, Randa? No, I think the, the whole accusation in the industry of calling out cancel culture is a symptom of a world in which white people, white elites are worried and, having, and expressing a backlash against the rising voices of minorities who, after the revolution of social media, being able to circumvent establishment media and the white gatekeepers who have shut us out, are now, are now experiencing a world where they are being held accountable. And so 
calling, calling out cancel culture and you're cancelling us is really just saying, you're picking on me now, you're holding me to account, I don't like this. And it's happening so often because voices, my marginalised people, Indigenous people, um, you know, minor, minority voices who have always been shut out always been shut out of establishment media, have never had the kind of platforms that white elites have had, are now being able to use the um, opportunities that social media provides as a public square to push back, to talk back. And that's really what's irritating, um, you know, the hegemony, the idea that they are being held to account. You know, it's something like the Harper's Magazine. You know, it contains signatures from a professor who had supported um, a Palestinian professor being sacked from his job, Stephen Salatia, after he had tweeted about Israel's um, military incursions in Gaza. And so we see time and time again this kind of hypocrisy. There isn't an interest in free speech. There isn't an interest in, you know, the free flow of ideas and this so-called marketplace of ideas. What they're worried about is that they can't control the discourse anymore, that the minorities are getting out of control, that they're raising their voices, that we can't maintain and contain them anymore. And that's what they're responding to. How do we characterise then what happened to Yasmin Abdul-Magid. I'm going to bring this back because it's a very, very potent example of that hypocrisy that you speak of. And just to go over that again, on Anzac Day a few years ago now, um, Yasmin put up a seven-word Facebook post that said, lest we forget Manus, Nauru, Syria, Palestine. And Australia just lost its mind. Yasmin now lives overseas, uh, and a lot of people now refer to that, or I, I was listening to a podcast by the journalist Sammy Shah, and he, he devoted an episode to this, and he said a lot of people of colour in the media use the term getting Yasmined. I want to say something, but I don't want to get Yasmined. There's this fear. And it's interesting that many of the attackers style themselves, as you say, as defenders of free speech. Many of those politicians and pundits were eager to see a revision of Section 18C, describing it as censorship. There's no recognition of this inconsistency among any of those commentators, though, is there? Well, they don't care about the inconsistency. I mean, they're not invested in, in anything that's fair or just. Um, the Yasmin example is really... It's a really powerful and important one. So I did, um, in my postdoc, my, the research that I just finished, I spoke to young people, um, young people who grew up in the age of terror, the war on terror, so born around 9-11. They've only ever known a world at war on terror, bookmarked between Obama and Trump, um, and have only grown up in a world where hate speech has been normalised. And I can't tell you how many young Muslim women and young Muslim men spoke to me about Yasmin and her being a, kind of an example to them of the cost and risks of publicly speaking out. And not just when I say publicly, I don't mean these students that I interviewed, you know, in schools in the hills, suburbs and northwest Sydney were talking about getting on Q&A. The public square for them was school. And even then they felt that school was not a safe space for them to articulate and express their, you know, experimentation with politics, their, the ideas that, that they wanted to express freely, but they felt that they needed to self-censor. Because if it could happen to someone like Yasmin Abdul-Majid, who for a time was the poster girl of the moderate Muslim woman, if that could happen to her and in such, in such a, you know, horrifically, um, you know, harmful way, then what did it mean for them? Because she did everything 
everything right and still it wasn't enough. And it it was really eye-opening for me to hear young girls and boys, 15, 16, 17, um, be very conscious that their ability to speak speak out and express themselves and experiment with their politics was constantly being muffled and she was used as an example for them. And I kind of see it as very symptomatic of a few years ago I had an operation and I experienced referred pain from that operation in my um, the diaphragm and then in my, in my shoulder. The pain was happening in my shoulder. And as I was writing my research, I realised that there was a metaphor there that Australia, this like white central nervous system, whenever it gets really angry about minorities speaking back, what it does is attacks and harms the figure who is speaking, so Yasmin here. But the referred pain is actually felt by young people who then are seeing what's happening to Yasmin and experiencing the pain because it's a signal to them, don't even dare try. Because if you do, this is what's going to happen to you. And so I think it was a very concerted campaign, not just against her, but against any black, you know, brown woman of colour who wants to speak out against our most sacred tradition, Anzacs, don't even dare try it. Kishore, you were nodding over there before. I I was, because I I can't help but think that the people that were driving the vitriol against Yasmin was News Corporation, right? Like, let's not beat around the bush here. This was a concerted media attack from a media company that took it upon itself to go after this one young woman and essentially hound her out of Australia. Now, when we're on the topic of the hypocrisy of people talking about cancel culture, I I find it interesting that... Um, nobody in this country has really ever been cancelled for racism. Um, and News Corporation um, employs a bloke called Andrew Bolt, who is the most read columnist in Australia. Now, probably nobody in this room um, is a regular reader of Andrew Bolt, unless you, unfortunately, like me, sometimes have to. But Andrew Bolt is the most read pundit in the country. He's on TV screens pretty much every night. He's got his own show. Andrew Bolt some of the things he says are, you know, not very far removed from what the uh, Christchurch shooter said. The things that Andrew Bolt says are physically, I think, dangerous to people of colour living in this country, right? Like, but that's the level of nastiness and vitriol that this man puts out into the media landscape on a daily basis. And there has never been even the closest smidgen of backlash towards any of this, right? Andrew Bolt also um, writes columns decrying cancel culture, by the way. So I, I think that that really kind of says it all. Isn't it if in this country, if you're a racist, you get on Dancing with the Stars? Like, it makes careers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. You are rewarded. Your, your career is actually increased and, you know, you mm, promoted. Mm, yeah. And so often it can just be like people will be like, oh, it, it was an incidental slip of the tongue, like the Sunrise host who called for a Muslim ban. You know, they'll, they'll do a tearful, tearful apology or something a few days later, but really there's not really much evidence of those people being cancelled out of the discourse. But yet you have people like Yasmin who were. And I, I really think that's quite telling when we have this debate. I mean, Daryl Summers was an interesting <laughs> interesting example recently of someone who decried cancel culture and that backfired spectacularly. Uh, but he's still on TV and has sort of seen no real consequences. Um, it's interesting that Scott Morrison is really starting to ramp up these lines. He's always hinted at these themes in different ways, but these last couple of speeches, he really seems to be going hard at it. And he's in this last speech from the last 24 hours, he also decried identity politics, which goes hand in hand with decrying cancel culture. 
And he said, but I would also say it includes the growing tendency to commodify human beings through identity politics. You are more than your gender. You are more than your race. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than your ethnicity. You are more than your religion, your language group, your age. Jeff, does Scott Morrison have a point? Yeah, I mean, again, there's a real sort of through-the-looking-glass quality about... um, a lot of these debates because, of course, um, identity politics has been weaponised by the right as much as by anyone else. So, you know, the whole Pentecostal um, tradition is based on a notion of defining yourself by a particular sort of Christian identity. So, you know, there's a rhetorical um, inversion there. But I guess I want to say that to come back to this question of definitions, because I am for freedom of speech, and I think there needs to be more freedom of speech in Australia, not less. But it depends greatly on what you mean by this. So, so let me give you an example that often comes up. You'll hear people talking about how, in my workplace, there's no freedom of speech anymore because, you know, I told a joke and everyone attacked me you know, it's political correctness gone mad, it's, it, it's cancel culture. And when, you'll, when you unpack that example, what it turns out is they told some sort of homophobic joke and other people in the workplace said, actually, we don't like it when you tell that joke, it makes us feel uncomfortable, can you please stop doing it? That is not censorship, that is not cancel culture, that is freedom of speech. That is people who previously would not have felt comfortable to speak up because, you know, a couple of generations ago it was illegal to be gay in Australia, speaking up and having their freedom of speech. That is a good thing and there should be more of it. However, in a workplace where an employer said, right, from now on every joke has to be mandated by the company, and we're going to, you know, like, make sure that only certain sorts of jokes can be told, that would be a bad thing. That would be censorship. And the difference is the first example actually encourages people to speak up, makes a workplace that is more confident, allows people from different backgrounds to have something to say. The second example gives far more power to the employees and creates a workplace where most ordinary people feel cowed and scared to say anything. I'm for the first I'm against the second. I don't see any contradiction between those two things. I think when we talk about freedom of speech, we get um, sort of seduced into to talking about well, what's the you know what's the opposite? What's the counterpoint that you know like yeah that we need more freedom of speech or that we need to um, you know open up avenues for other people to talk? But I think that what what the debate misses is that minorities aren't saying we want more freedom of speech. What we're saying is we want to interrogate why those who hold power in the corridors of power are maintaining that power and what's at stake here. And then that opens up a discussion about race in this country. It opens up a discussion about, you know, um, the the way that there is this, you know, white patriarchal, um, you know, dominance and how it cannot, it cannot tolerate any kind of challenge to it. And then you start to unpack well, who are we as a nation? And these are the sorts of questions that minorities are asking. And those are the conversations that the white elites want to cancel and shut down because it requires us to actually start thinking, well, when you try and shut down Indigenous people from calling out, you know, Australia Day as Invasion Day and 
you know, you know, you try and shut down protests. You you try and, for example, I remember in June 2020 when there were, there were the Black Lives Matter protests and the protests about David Dungay Jr. and his and his death in custody. Um, you know, the way that the state tried to shut that down and arrested Indigenous people. I was at the shops, my local shops, that weekend, and there was a huge car fair in the, um, in the parking lot. There were no masks, there was no social distancing. It was the same weekend that that was happening, and there wasn't a single cop around. And in fact, I think two weeks later, Scott Morrison was talking about opening, going into stage three, opening up stadiums, 10,000 people. So I think, you know, all of this talk about cancel culture these are concerted ways to keep minorities quiet, to keep Indigenous people quiet and contained. And so it's not even talking about, you know, what can we say and what we can't say. What, what are the power that is at stake here? You know, why, why are minorities being held down? What are we trying to challenge? And we're trying to challenge the racism that's at the core of this country and the inequalities, and that's what gets them so angry. Mm. And I am interested in that idea of definitions and going back to very basics because there's so many assumptions that are made about these terms, including freedom of speech. Kishore, what do you think the general public thinks that free speech means? Because for one, it's not actually enshrined here in Australia. So what, what does it mean in people's minds? Yes, of course. Well, I think probably most people in Australia would talk about the First Amendment because we've soaked up so much kind of culture from the United States. But yeah, look, I actually think that we live in a time where you've probably got more freedom of speech than you've ever had in the history of human civilization. That might come as a shock if you read screeds about how the West is in decline because of rising censoriousness and that kind of thing. But I think the reason we have that is because we are kind of in something of a, a social movement whereby, or, or a broader movement, where people who historically didn't have a platform, people who historically were based on their identity, were not able to speak as freely as they perhaps could, were not able to speak about their experiences of living with that identity, are now able to speak. A lot of that is because these people can access something like the internet. They can get on Twitter and suddenly the barriers between the gatekeepers of, of the discourse and the, you know, the punters on the fringes have been kind of narrowed a lot more. And I think that's, that's why we're seeing a lot of this debate, because suddenly it is a lot more easy for people to speak. There is the, the hierarchies that did exist in terms of who got to have a platform, they still do exist, but they have been sort of blurred a little bit. And when you have a movement like that, you're going to break a few eggs. So yes, you are going to see the kind of anomalous cases that people generally on the right like to talk about. The guy from Google who lost his job because he did a bad post or something like that. They always talk about that guy from Google. Um, you know, there's people that have done posts that might have been offensive and might have gotten backlash. And yes, sometimes that backlash is bad. You know, I've, I've gotten internet backlash before. It's probably not the same as losing a job, but it sucks and it's annoying. But all of this is, I think, a consequence of an age where we have more free speech than ever before. It's a consequence of that speech happening. And I think the last thing to say here is this. People like winning arguments, and I think that that is why perhaps the kind of terms like cancel culture get thrown around by people, because it's perhaps a way to claim and frame your opponents as trying to shut you down. But, this, but really what you want to do is also shut them down, because you want to win the argument. So I guess we're at a time where there are more voices in the debate, there is a bigger argument, but there's also a far messier argument. And I think that 
perhaps a lot of these problems we have are because of profound mess of what the argument looks like now. But I think that mess is a good thing because uh, there are more people in the mess who were never able to enter into the mess before, if that makes any kind of sense. I might maybe jump in that there because, I mean, I think that there is, there is a point, a real point here that I don't think that there is this, you know, um, massive campaign of left-wing censorship taking place or anything like that. But I, I do think that um, uh, we do need to learn to argue better. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't think, for instance, the internet pylons are particularly useful, and I don't think the various campaigns for people to, to get other people sacked are particularly useful or progressive either. In some ways, what, what frustrates me a little bit about this debate is that the problems that we face today are so substantial and so urgent you know, um, I've just finished uh, writing a book about um, uh, the climate crisis and, you know, in, in which I'm trying to make a, an argument that if there's any hope to um, save any aspect of the environment, we need to move towards something like a planned economy because I just do not think that the unbridled growth of the free market is compatible with the continued existence of life on the planet. Okay, that is an enormous challenge, right? To get from where we are to where we need to be, we need to learn how to have strategic arguments with each other and we need to learn how to have them productively. And I think that is something that people on the left need to, to, to take on. I mean, you know, all of this talk now about um, the real possibility of a war with China, what would it look like to build an anti-war movement in Australia? How do we do it? How would we mobilise? What kind of strategic debates would we have to make that possible? In some ways, I think that this is where we need to start moving that argument, and that means we need to actually start to learn to have those strategic arguments in a productive way. But even when, when it comes to sort of climate change, even when people do it the right way, the state cracks down. So when we had the schools strikes for climate change, you had Scott Morrison saying schools shouldn't be parliaments. We need more learning in schools, less activism in schools. The patronising, condescending dismissal of young people's agency as though they were being the pawns of the environmental movement. And so even when young people go out there and express their civic, you know, responsibilities and civic right to protest, to do it the right through the right channels, um, not do, you know, not pile on on media when they try and use the you know, their democratic right to protest, it is instantly shut down. Likewise with Invasion Day. I was at the Invasion Day um, protest in Sydney this year and I went with my kids and as we walked in, two cops approached me and very, very deliberately looked at my kids and said, you are aware that if you are in a space with more than 100 people, you can be arrested. I need to caution you before you enter this space. And so those are the sorts of attempts to shut down, to cancel, to, to remove certain people, certain groups from protesting. So I don't even think that we're, you know, the way that the, the right constantly talks about the pylons on social media. I mean, when it comes to toxic, you know, trolling on social media, they have form, they have perfected that art. And it's not usually somebody who's on the right who deletes their Twitter account because they get death threats and can't live their life. It's usually minorities and marginalised people who can't continue on the internet because they are shut down and silenced. Meanwhile, you mentioned protest and a lot of this conversation has dovetailed with the restrictions put on us as a result of COVID and in some ways it can be used as a cloak. But there's also a growing trend across here and the world of, of governments cracking down on and outlawing protests. Jeff, I think you just recently tweeted that in Tasmania, Labor is actually competing with the Liberals about 
outlawing protests. Yeah, it was a shocking election campaign in um, Tasmania. But, I mean, there's an obvious example from today. I mean, if you want to know what the climate crisis is going to look like in a few years' time, look at what's happening in India at the moment. And that, this is what climate breakdown is going to mean for the world's poorest people. And how do governments respond to this? They're responding with massively intensified state powers. Now we have a situation where the Australian government is saying that Australian citizens cannot come back to their, their own country. In those circumstances, I think we have to be very, very careful about intensified state powers. Um, because, you know, what what will climate breakdown mean? It will mean? Every scientist says it will mean billions of, millions of climate refugees. How is Australia going to respond when there are millions of um, dispossessed brown people moving all around the world? What is that going to look like? Well, we know what it's going to look like. It's going to look like, um, you know, Manus. It's going to look like Nauru. It's going to look like intensified border policing. And, and then when we try and talk about it, they'll say that's identity politics. You know, you're not your gender, you're not your race. Well, you're the ones who have politicised those categories of identity. I, you know, most people who have, you know, th those intersectional identities, they really do wish that they could navigate this country without having to have their identity markers politicised and weaponised against them. But it's not us that are playing that identity card. It's us trying to show the nuance of living in this country and experiencing certain things in a certain way. So climate change will absolutely Absolutely, and does impact brown people in, in developing countries and here indigenous people more than it does, you know, the white majority. But immediately those slogans are thrown at you to shut that kind of dissent down. Randa, I want to ask you a little bit on a completely, well, separate subject, but it's in that yet another example of how, who decides what can be said and where it can be said. You've compared that term of cancel culture to the cancelling of Palestine in any kind of public debate forum or, or media, mainstream media outlet in Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about the open statement that you attempted to get published and, and what happened there? Yeah, so in June 2020, Australia was only one of two countries who um, voted against a human rights um, resolution in the UN um, condemning Israel's proposed um, illegal annexation of the occupied West Bank. So it's, you know, it, Australia has form on this. It's absolutely shameful um, the way that it constantly um, greenlights Israel's human rights abuses. And so Michaela Sahad, who's a Palestinian academic in Melbourne and Sarah Saleh, who's a poet and activist and, um, in, in Sydney, we decided that we would try and get an open letter um, signed by academics and artists. Um, and within two days, we had 800 signatures. And, you know, some of the leading, you know, Indigenous artists and academics immediately, without, you know, without even a second thought, signed on. And it was a pretty historic and unprecedented show of solidarity for Palestinians. And then we tried to get it published. Overland immediately published um, us, and they've always given a platform for Palestinian voices. But we were completely either ignored or um, by, by establishment media. Um, you know, some of the emails I got back was it it was the vibe was that I was almost hassling them um, and, you know, kind of hustling for a space. Um, when it came to the Saturday paper, and, you know, I know this is probably going to ruin me saying this, but, you know, they are an openly Zionist publication and what's really frustrating about them and Schwartz Media is that they own progressive media in this country. Um, you know, the monthly, the, you know, the um, quarterly essay, the Saturday paper, and there is, you know, both anecdotal and, you know, um, clear evidence that they do sideline and um, silence Palestinian voices 
businesses. And so after repeated emails and repeated entreaties to them to publish this letter, we received absolute silence from them. Um, and so then we went to the public and um, we fundraised to get advertising space, which was really frustrating to have to, to pay for a space for an open letter, which should, because of its historical significance, have been platformed in establishment media. But it really shows that um, when you want to raise your voice in support of Palestine, and when you do so foregrounding Indigenous sovereignty and foregrounding solidarity with Indigenous people, you are not going to get that platform in this country. I just want to stay on the media theme for a minute and make sure that we use all the different buzzwords today. And I want to talk a little bit about deplatforming. Um, Kishore, ABC journalist Sarah Henderson was torn to shreds a few years ago on social media for tweeting a photo of herself standing defiantly next to Steve Bannon in reply to the suggestion that she should never have given him a platform and interviewed him. And more recently, she interviewed the head of the Proud Boys as part of her Four Corners special on the Capitol riots. She would argue that she should be interrogating these kinds of people to challenge and unmask them. Isn't that good journalism? Uh, brings me back to one of my favourite posts of the last few years. Um, look, yes, it is important journalism, it is good journalism, but we've got to be really, really wary when we do journalism on these people. And I think that there is a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. And often that line is really, really difficult tightrope to walk on. So I think the problem with that initial interview that Sarah Ferguson did with Steve Bannon a few years ago was the way she approached it w was interesting. She said something like, there's no suggestion that you're a racist or something like that. Uh, Steve Bannon would probably think he's a racist. Um, so, so I think when you're dealing with people like that, you've got to interrogate their ideas, but be careful not to be played because the far right and a lot of figures in that kind of ecosystem are very savvy at using kind of mainstream journalists as pawns and, and using them to get their sound bites out into the ecosystem, using them to launder and legitimize their ideas. Because, you know, if you are a, you know, a fascist or someone on the far right and you've suddenly got the ABC or legitimate news sites kind of like, you know, putting out your views and putting you on TV, it gives you a degree of legitimacy, right? And that legitimacy is really important for those groups because that's precisely what they want. It makes them seem normal and not horrific aberrations that put people's lives at risk. Um, so yes, it is the whole purpose of journalism to try to understand and unpack and interrogate those ideas, but it's really important to not get played. There's, there's a lot of sort of work and research that's gone out into how we as journalists can grapple with these ideas of how we can cover these people without platforming them. I think it, it involves a lot of reading up on the context behind these people, knowing your subject matter really, really well, and knowing exactly when to push back. So I think in that initial Bannon interview, uh, you know, Ferguson almost wore it as a kind of badge of pride. She, you know, put out that defiant tweet about stop silos and that kind of thing. But that's not what the issue is here, right? This isn't about retreating into journalistic silos. This is about how do we deal with someone who has profound influence over the United States, but also puts out the kind of ideas that led to Trumpism, that led to a lot of the kind of you know, civic breakdown and violence and, and, and all that that came as a byproduct of Trumpism. It's about knowing when to push back. It's about doing it things sensitively and doing things the right way. 
I might jump in on... Yeah, yeah, on, um, You've that. written a bit about this, Jeff. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I talk about this in my, my little book on um, Christchurch. I think, in some respects, it's another good example of how twisted and strange these debates become, because the problem with the, the way that the media in Australia treats the question of fascism is not that there is... Um, it's not that there's too much journalism, it's that there's too little journalism. And so, for instance, the, we know now that the Christchurch perpetrator was in contact with some of the members of the United Patriots Front when that organisation was active in um, Australia. When the UPF was at its height, there were constant um, occasions where members of the UPF were given, you know, stages or platforms or whatever. And the problem wasn't um, the journalists... The problem was the journalists hadn't actually done enough research and didn't actually tell their, their readers who these people were and what they believed in. And that was the kind of journalism we need. We needed journalism that explained more about these people, not less. And I think the same thing about um, the Christchurch perpetrator, in fact, that there was a, a lot of backslapping in the, Australia, in, the, in the media about not using his name and, and so on and so forth, which I am totally fine with. But the real problem with the reporting of what happened in Christchurch was that there was a tendency not to take the perpetrator's ideas seriously. Here is someone who wrote a lengthy manifesto where he explained in detail how he was a fascist, he belonged to an international fascist movement, and he even said at one point, um, I am a fascist, I bet the journalists will love that. By and large, very few journalists actually discussed him in terms of fascism. Instead, they said he was an extremist. Instead, they said he was, you know, mentally unwell. Actually, his document is incredibly coherent and puts forward an incredibly dangerous program that lots of fascists around the world agree with, and that should have been discussed. So all the talk of cancellation, the problem was there wasn't enough discussion. But it does, it speaks to the the racism within establishment white media because there were media, but within minority communities who are, have, you know, been calling this out since 9-11, who have been saying focus on the rise of the far right, focus on the fact that they're mobilising, that their hate speech is being normalised. Um, you know, yesterday on a panel, um, Indigenous journalist Amy McGuire, she made a really excellent point, which is the fact that we're not going to get this from white media because they don't have that anti-racist some sort of insurgent, um, you know, agenda, which is what we need in this country. We need we need journalism that has an anti-racism agenda and is unapologetic about that. But there's no interest in that. It just operates under the facade and pretense of so-called objectivity and neutrality, which in a context of a racist country is not neutrality. It is siding with racism and legitimising it. So that's the kind of journalism that we need, which is not going to happen in white mainstream media who are never interested in listening to minority voices who are doing that journalism but are being flatly ignored when they do it. So that's the frustrating thing. And while we're on the topic of Christchurch, it's fascinating to me that that has been completely forgotten a couple of years on in the Australian media landscape. I mean, you know, we bred a terrorist that murdered 50 people in New Zealand and like one of the most horrific terrorist acts of the last decade. And we just don't talk about it at all here. We just washed our hands and moved on. It's crazy to me. Can I just make one more point about, about um, sort of, you know, the Steve Bannon interview and, and these interviews that happened with, with the far right? I think there was Blair Cottrell on, um, you know, on Sky News. There is one audience that, you know, 
even we in our own adult, you know, conversations and bubbles forget. And that is younger Australians who are seeing this. And I remember visiting a school and a young girl said to me, seeing Blair Cottrell on Sky News, a neo-Nazi, I should be shocked, but I'm not. This is the new normal. That is the kind of audience that I want a journalist to think about. The fact that not only are you legitimizing these voices and normalizing white supremacy in mainstream media, there are young people who are picking up on that and are critical, and there are young people who see this as a cue and a signifier that this is okay, that this is a legitimate voice in this so-called fake marketplace of ideas. And so the responsibility in ethics has to extend beyond these so-called abstract free speech debates to trickle down into what's happening in classrooms. I was at a school two days ago, and I was speaking about Pauline Hanson, and a young kid put his hand up and said, yeah, but she has the freedom to say what she wants. And you know, I thought he's in year 11. He's never, ever heard a counter-argument to that, the, the power that comes and the, and the harm that is done with that kind of speech. So we need a radical restructuring of, of education and our media to shake up and have these sort of conversations where we do take on race and, and we do take on these voices and put them under scrutiny and radical scrutiny at that. So fascinating to get that perspective of that ground level of, of kids and how this is trickling down into the way that they speak to each other and whether or not they feel they have the privilege to speak. So thank you so much for giving that perspective. It's absolutely fascinating and I, I don't think it's one we all would be privileged to. I mean, all of the themes that we've teased out here today, they all come back to power. Power and the powerful. And, and in a lot of ways, this this so-called debate around cancel culture seems like a little bit of a, a weapon of mass distraction in a lot of ways. Um, Jeff, I know that you've written before that the avenues for public expression in Australia are controlled by a tiny number of people. Who are those people? Yeah. I mean, I, I want to make myself clear about this. I am for freedom of speech. I want there to be more freedom of speech in Australia, not less. We have a, a media that is um, incredibly monopolised in Australia, one of the most concentrated medias anywhere in the world. And we have a situation where, with the decline of the trade union movement, people are more intimidated about speaking up in their workplaces than they've been for generations. These are all bad things, not good things. I want a diverse media. I want a media that um, isn't controlled by geriatric billionaires. I want a media that gives more people a chance to speak, not fewer people. Um, and I think that as we move into an increasingly chaotic world, these things are tremendously important and we shouldn't be distracted by these nonsense debates. We need to be able to speak up and we need to um, fight back against those who would prevent us from doing so. Um, I'm sure the audience are burning to ask their own questions and exercise their own freedom of speech. Uh, hi, everybody. I hate being in front of everybody, but I've got a question I really <laughs> want to ask. Um, uh, I, I sort of move a little bit in... Um, uh, sort of left spaces in academia and also uh, within the Greens Party, the Greens of Australia. And one of the tensions, one of the points of conflict that I see, uh, my perception of it, is a tension between uh, people on the left who want to draw our focus, particularly on economic um, social class injustice, and they tend to say that people who are focusing upon race and gender identity politics, particularly, well, I'll leave it there, 
are drawing air away from where the real uh, battle of the left is, which should be about economic injustice. Um, and then folks um, in the identity politics camp saying, no, 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 this is really important. Um, we need to do this. And there's a bit of a binary going on. Now, it's not a binary that I personally believe has to be there, but I would like to hear you guys offer a, a discussion. Do you see that as a point of conflict within the left? And if so, what's your response? Well, yeah, it's definitely something that I come up against as a critical race theorist um, and someone who is in activist spaces at community and academia. Um, and my, from my point of view, as somebody who's has been quite a long journey towards understanding race in this country, I'm really not interested in anybody defining what the the key injustice in this country except Indigenous people. And if they say that race is the organising grammar of this country, then they are the authorities on it. And I will take everything from there because... But the theory is about where injustice comes from in this country, the root causes of it, have been theorised ad nauseum by Indigenous people who were the first people to have been oppressed and, and continuing in this country. And so I think that those debates about class and race usually come from people who dismiss Indigenous voices and, and theory and, and authority to speak and define what the problem is in this country and the solutions. Jeff, you've written a little bit about this yourself as well. In fact, I wrote a whole book. Just a smidge. Look, I, I don't see the... Um, it seems to me that the two issues most often go together in a society where there is a tremendous polarisation of wealth. Um, and, you know, in many ways across the world now, we're looking at a new gilded age where the number of billionaires has never been higher and the, the number of people, you know, working for um, poverty wages has never been higher. That gulf has become greater and greater. In that situation, um, racism flourishes. In fact, when people have more opportunities, it's much easier to fight back against racism. So I don't th see a counterposition between those two struggles. I think, in fact, they go hand in hand. First of all, I just wanted to thank you all for a really interesting conversation. Um, I could see a few audience members Googling key terms and taking notes, and I think we've all really learned something from this chat. Um, my question is, as a young Australian Muslim hyphenated in multiple ways um, identity, growing up reading books like one of your very first Rhonda, Does My Head Look Big in This, was really helpful and important because it made my Australian experience feel very seen. Um, and yet growing up, I've also had other invalidating moments, like you mentioned, in media not feeling heard, being shot down, the Yasmin moment, all these things also invalidating my experience. And conversations around council culture that we've discussed today and race and even climate change all come down to what is Australia and this identity crisis that Australia is going through, deciding who we are at the core. Do you think that Australia, all of you, do you think that Australia is ready to look its minorities in the eyes and say that we are equally and validly as Australian as the mainstream or white Australian that we've been led to believe is the only experience that exists? No, I, I personally don't think Australia's ready. My work on Islamophobia, like somebody asked me the other day, if you could see anything improve for the Muslim community, any policy, what would it be? And I said, honestly, as someone who fights Islamophobia, it would be justice for Indigenous people because everything goes back to that root 
root original injustice and the racial grammar of this country um, is built on that. And so I think everyone else's emancipation and liberation is going to come when we address the root injustices and, um, and core, you know, issues of this country, which is Indigenous sovereignty and its denial and refusal. Um, so I think that Australia is not ready for that conversation um, and, it, you know, the fact that still deaths in custody are still happening and nothing concrete has been done about that. So it just means that it doesn't mean that I'm trying to dash your hope. It just means we need, to, we need more people in the fight and we need to keep fighting because that's the moment where people despair um, and that's the moment that, you know, racists and people who are against injustice, that's what they're counting on for us giving up. But this is the moment we have to create that mass mobilisation of fighters to continue that fight and push back. Hi, I'd also like to thank you all for speaking today. There's been some great um, points that I've really enjoyed listening to. Um, I just had a question uh, for Randa. When that um, student, you know, when you were talking about Pauline Hanson um, said, well, you know, she has freedom of speech, you know, she can say what she wants. I was just wondering how you responded to that because I have heard that argument quite often, um, you know, when people are talking about freedom of speech. So I was just wondering what your response was. Well, I think in, in the context of the hour that I had with that student and the students, I actually gave them a very personal lived account of what that kind of harmful speech does. Um, you know, I, I, and I showed them the trajectory of Pauline Hanson. I was, uh, in 1998, I stood for the um, federal election in a party called Unity Say No to Hanson. I was um, 18 years old. And then I showed them an image of, of Pauline Hanson's tweets now. And I said, you know, look at this career that she's had. You know, I've, I'm still talking about this woman, you know, like... <laughs> You know, and, and I said to him, that's the harm that comes with normalising her speech. So I tried to give him a personal account and then I spoke to him afterwards. Sometimes it does take showing people the harmful impact of their speech on lived experience rather than in an abstract way. Hello. Um, a, a slight pivot and uh, a use of a couple of um, buzzwords that we haven't heard. Um, cultural appropriation and authenticity. Um, in the world of fiction these days, it's difficult to get published unless you are authentic. Um, uh, and that's because, I don't know why, publishers, for example, won't um, publish a book about a black person, let's say, written by a white person, or perhaps vice versa. Um, and whether that's because that's what they perceive the writers want, or whether that's their agenda, I'd be interested in your views on why it is, whether it's appropriate, or whether it's more appropriate that we should have multiple voices, as we heard, for example, in the, the Beyond the Pale panel this morning. Um, yes, we need, obviously, black voices talking about black stories, but um, do we also need white voices talking about black stories? We've had so many of them. I mean... We've had so many of them. It's kind of like, um, do we really need more? <laughs> It's, that's really the canon of English literature, isn't it? So it's our time. But, it's, but, but you're cancelling all those who want to write them who can't get published. Somebody's cancelling them. But maybe they're getting cancelled because their books aren't very good. <laughs> like, like I, I mean, to be clear, I think like the publishing world responds to a bunch of different incentives, some of them commercial, some of them cultural, some of them sort of zeitgeist-related. And I think... If a publisher is turning you down, it's perhaps not a result of a kind of sinister um, attempt to stop white people writing black characters. I just think that the fact that they lack that lived experience maybe means that the way 
they write that black character isn't very compelling and in a limited market situation, uh, if you're a publisher, you choose between the one which is the authentic or the more authentic story that will probably just be better and that's probably why it gets published. But then, again, there's plenty of people who are writing pretty crappy books at the moment and pretty problematic books at the moment, so I don't know if there's that much of a problem, but yeah. We need a whole panel for that. We absolutely <laughs> do, and we are bang on one o'clock. So thank you so much for all those fantastic questions, everyone. And please join me in thanking Randa, Jeff, and Kishore. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.